Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Aaron. We're in a series called The Greatest Reset, and last week was kind of our introduction into this series, and I started off by talking about how I recently had to reset our church's Wi-Fi system here at Lacuma Junior High because it was not functioning properly, and I never finished the story, and it it was such a riveting story, right? (laughs) I have had dozens of phone calls and emails you know, people asking me how it all turned out because uh, I never finished the story. No, I didn't. Uh, but turns out, after troubleshooting the issue and deciding that pressing the reset button was the best course of action, it turns out our Wi-Fi router was not the problem at all. It, it was working just fine. The problem was something we actually had no ability at all to fix. It was an issue with the school's internet security settings. And remember how I said last week that the reset button can be a helpful thing, but pressing that button accidentally or unnecessarily can result in setting you back a long, long ways. Devices, settings, configurations that took hours, maybe days, even weeks to set up and initialize, all instantaneously wiped out, forcing you to start over from scratch. Turns out, in our case, that's exactly what happened. Uh, That's what happens when the pastor decides to try his hand at solving IT issues. Often, because it doesn't go the way you'd like it to. The idea behind this series, The Greatest Reset, is that our lives are something like a computer, something loosely similar to a computer or other devices that start misfiring, start, you know, not functioning optimally, perhaps even wind up crashing, kind of like the way a computer crashes, and you wish that there was a reset button that would take everything back to the beginning, everything back to the original state, a state before everything started misfiring. But when it comes to real life, there is no reset button. We make choices and decisions, and the consequences of those choices and decisions are often irreversible. You can't undo them. You drive too fast, you disobey traffic laws, you get a ticket. Or, or worse, you literally wind up in, in, in a crash, crashing, wind up in a hospital, or, or, or even worse than that. Uh, or maybe you live a little bit too fast, and you wind up going a little too fast, a little too far with somebody that you're not married to, and you wind up destroying your marriage and your family, and your kids bear the consequences, or you experiment with drugs. You become addicted, you lose your job, you lose your health, you destroy relationships along the way, and you potentially destroy your whole life. You know, there are consequences to our choices and behavior. Choices uh, are consequences not just for yourself, but often for the people around you, as many of us are all too painfully aware. And oftentimes, those consequences are irreversible. But as we talked about last week, While they may be irreversible, they are not irredeemable. That was my point last week. Though consequences may be irreversible, they are not irredeemable. God can take the broken pieces of your past, your foolish decisions and choices and behaviors, maybe even the foolish decisions and choices and behaviors of other people, the consequences of those things that you are suffering, God can take all those broken pieces and create something truly beautiful and valuable out of those 
broken pieces. And I closed last week, uh, last week's message by showing you this picture of, of a piece of artwork known as kintsugi, which is a Japanese art form. Uh, it's, the, it's the art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with lacquer mixed with gold, powdered gold, gold powder. Uh, the idea being that you treat the breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to discard or dispose of. And as you can see, it winds up looking even more beautiful than it had been otherwise, looking more beautiful than it even it was originally. And I suggested that if a human artist is capable of such beautiful artistry, imagine what our loving creator God can do with the broken pieces of your life when you put them into his hands. So the greatest reset technically is not actually a reset at all, which, which a reset just simply sets everything back to its original state, back to the beginning. The greatest reset is, is actually far better than a reset. Now, my guess is that pretty much everybody here is familiar with something called the Great Reset, which was the chosen title or the theme of the 50th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in June of 2020. The World Economic Forum hosts an annual conference that brings together high-profile corporate and political leaders where they discuss all kinds of global issues, economic issues, health issues, climate issues, social and political issues, and they all work together to try to come up with solutions to the challenges humanity is facing all over the world, which no one can deny is, is, is not a bad idea. You know, it seems like a really good idea. You know, business leaders, political leaders, academic leaders, leaders in the fields of science, philosophy, economics, all coming together to identify and address the challenges facing humanity. In principle, that is something we should all be able to applaud and get behind. However, in case you haven't noticed, this has become a, a quite controversial thing. Uh, the con that conference in particular, the one from 2020 that was called the Great Reset. And let me just assure you, it is not the purpose of this series at all to dive into this controversy, except to point out that pretty much everyone on the planet seems to agree that the world is, in fact, in need of some kind of reset. Very few people would dispute that. The world, and humanity in particular, has begun misfiring and malfunctioning in a way that has become increasingly concerning, uh, where, you know, these problems over here have triggered these other problems, which have triggered, s triggered several more problems in related but separate areas, resulting in a degree of instability and chaos that we won't be able to ignore much longer leading a lot of people to conclude that the world needs to hit some kind of reset button. And that's why the WEF chose that title, The Great Reset, for their 50th annual convention. But the controversy, of course, you know, comes in on these things. You know, what, what, what exactly do you mean by hitting the reset button? And is it even possible to hit a global reset button? Uh, who exactly is going to hit this button? Are we sure we fully understand the implications and consequences of hitting the proverbial reset button? And maybe most importantly, should we even be assuming that the world, the economy, and the environment, justice, morality, and things like that can be reset as if they were anything remotely comparable to a computer program? You know, 
which a reset button is virtually exclusively relegated to. It's relegated to technology. Are human, human beings, or is, or is humanity, anything at all like a piece of technology that you can just hit a button and reset? Let me just, you know, put out there, this is fundamentally what Christians believe, and pretty much everybody, I mean, this is not a deep theo theological thing at all. It's just, it's just kind of the base, the fundamentally what virtually all Christians believe, as well as just pretty much anybody that believes in God. There's ultimately, there, there ultimately are no lasting effective solutions to any of this apart from God. That, that's what we believe, right? I mean, can I get an amen on that? There's, there's, no, there's no solutions apart from God. There are ultimately no lasting, effective solutions to the problems and challenges humanity faces, whether individually, you know, as individual human beings, you know, personal problems, or socially, or civically, or culturally, or nationally, or globally. There are ultimately no lasting, effective solutions to any of these problems apart from God. Now, does that mean that God can't guide or influence or supernaturally and maybe even covertly direct people in their search for the answers to humanity's ills, even, even when they don't believe in him? Of, of course not. In fact, the Bible on many occasions strongly suggests that he does. But here is what Jesus' followers, Christians, and, and most people who believe in God, are, are really fully persuaded of. To the degree that men and women reject, exclude, or deny God's authority in their lives and in the world will be the degree to which men and women will either languish or flourish. So, so to the degree to which any meeting of the minds, any conference or convention or assembly called together to analyze and discuss the solutions and ills that plague society, to the degree that any, any of these meetings, whether it's a town hall meeting or a Southern Baptist convention or the World Economic Forum or even a family meeting, to the degree that it rejects or excludes or denies God's authority will be to the, the degree to which it becomes destructive rather than effective because we need God. We, we human beings need God. Humanity needs God. We were created with a, a need for God, created with the need to live in relationship with him, not controlled by him like a puppet or a computer program, but living in relationship with him as children living in proper relationship with, with their father honoring and obeying him as father, while at the same time having great freedom to grow and learn and explore and create and enjoy all of creation. See, Jesus went so far as to say, unless you abide in me, dwell in me, continually stay connected to me and I to you, unless you do that, you'll dry up. Just as a branch disconnected from a tree or a vine dries up and perishes. Apart from me, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You need God. Everyone needs God. But of course, not everyone believes in God, which obviously means not everyone is persuaded that we need him. 
There are a lot of people who are not only convinced we don't need God to solve the socio-economic, political, environmental, and other challenges facing the world. They're, they are actually convinced that belief in God is a fundamental problem to solving those things. They, they're convinced belief in God actually stands in the way of socioeconomic, political, and environmental progress. That's no secret, right? I mean, you see that a lot pretty obvious. There are people who hold this view, and it's obvious that there always have been people that hold this view, which is why you, you see uh, uh, passages like this. This, this one written, this is from the Psalms, written some 3,000 years ago. Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples pl plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. For, for quite some time, there have been people who have seen God and his guidance and his wisdom and his commands as oppressive and intrusive and backward and have consequently just wanted God out of the picture. It's in our sinful nature, ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, to, to want God out of the picture and just to want to go it alone. So we want to do it ourselves. We want to fix everything ourselves. We want to do it our way. We want to be our own boss, accountable to no one except ourselves. No one telling us what to do. Charles Stanley once wrote this. He said, The fool's game is believing that I can live my life my way and win. Such a life is marked by rebellion, disobedience, and pride. God simply will not bless or reward such a life. You can tell me about your degrees, experience, background, credentials, accomplishments, notoriety, fame, fortune, and awards, but if you are rejecting God in your life, you are still playing the fool's game. The most important thing you can do in your life is to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. We need God. We need God individually. We need Him communally, socially, culturally, nationally and globally. We are lost without him. Now, some will be quick to point out that there is, a broad, there, there is broad division, even hostile division, among those who believe in God as to what God might say is the direction we should take in addressing the challenges facing the human race. And yes, that is a, a, a very real problem but not at all a surprising problem and certainly not a hopeless or insurmountable one. But let's be honest. Come on. First of all, nobody can deny that history is filled with people invoking God and the Bible in an attempt to justify evil and immorality and corruption and to get God-fearing people on their side. Nothing new at all. Nazi Germany is a classic case. Slave traders in the antebellum South and countless other movements and ideologies down through history that have tried to co-opt God and the Bible and, and belief in God. But you would think that if someone who believes in God found themselves routinely in agreement on matters of morality and justice with those who do deny or denounce God openly, that you, you would think that if they found themselves agreeing with God, people that God, people that denounce God, that they would maybe have an epiphany and rethink their beliefs and convictions. But we human beings, we are very prone to deception. All of us are. And the more you recognize this, the less prone you're going to be to, to deception. But we are all 
easily deceived, which is why Jesus and the other New Testament writers routinely warned us, see to it that no one deceives you. Uh, do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Let no one deceive you in any way. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. And on and on, over and over, many references warning us to guard ourselves against being deceived. We are easily deceived. And the reason we are so easily deceived is because our own hearts are full of deception. As a prophet Isaiah, or excuse me, a prophet Jeremiah wrote, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really even knows how bad it is? The nature of our deception, of course, kind of boils down to our pride. It's our denial about how bad our heart really is, how wicked our heart really is. And our insistence upon our self-reliance our, our self-sufficiency, our wanting to fix it ourselves, thinking and thinking that we can do so, our belief that we know best, we are confident of our own goodness, our own intelligence, the vast breadth of our knowledge and understanding and our ability to be the masters of our own fate. That's what pride is. It's what it is. Let me go over it again. It's confidence in our own goodness, our own intelligence, and the vast breadth of our knowledge and understanding, and our ability to be the masters of our own fate. See, our pride makes us extremely prone to deception. But Jesus, Jesus, the one whom John said, the one John said, through whom all things were created, and without him nothing has been created that has been created. It's a little redundant, but apparently John felt it was so important and needed to be restated. Jesus, the one about whom John said, in him was light, and the light was the light of all men and women. Jesus begins his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, this way. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven almost sounds a little like some kind of reset, doesn't it? Kind of a, 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 a re, yeah, a reset. And in a sense, it kind of is. This, this is an announcement that Jesus is making. It's an announcement. Sometimes people read this and think these are commands Jesus is giving or maybe expectations that Jesus is laying on those who would follow him. You need to be more poor in spirit. You need to mourn. You need to be meek and you need to hunger and thirst after righteousness down the line. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. It's important to see the context in which Jesus is making this announcement. Just a few verses before this, Matthew records the very beginnings of Jesus' ministry, chapter 4. So this, this, these Beatitudes come at the very early beginnings of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew records this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, 
Repent. Repent. Turn around your mind. Change your thinking. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. Then just a couple verses later, Matthew records that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming or announcing the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, demon, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. He healed them because the kingdom of heaven was breaking in on humanity, breaking into the world in an unprecedented way. Large crowds from Galilee, from, from the Decapolis, from Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And then the very next thing that Matthew records is, is, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and then he goes into his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes that we just read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the context of these Beatitudes is Jesus' announcement of the good news of the kingdom. Now, this is so important, so stay with me here. The context of what we just read is Jesus coming and saying the kingdom of heaven has come to planet Earth along with a new king, the time has been fulfilled. History has reached its, its crucial intersection. And we are now passing from one era into another era. A whole new world order, if you will, is being initiated and established. Heaven is invading earth. Again, unprecedented, in unprecedented ways. God's redemptive power and reign is breaking in to our broken world. So then ra rather than being a list of commandments or a list of ideals his followers should strive for in order to receive these blessings, you know, that are described, what Jesus is doing here is he's painting a profile of what a person who is welcoming and receiving the kingdom of heaven that it, he is announcing. Uh, a person, he, he's painting a profile of a person who is welcoming, becoming a kingdom of heaven type of person. See, when you look at this passage this way, it goes from being a frustrating, you know, it goes from, from frustrating idealism to, a, 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 um, it goes from frustrating idealism or oppressive uh, legalism to liberating and life-giving affirmation. Here, here's what Jesus is saying. Let's break it down. One of the signs that you are welcoming the kingdom of heaven and becoming an heir to that kingdom is that you become poor in spirit. Well, what does poor in spirit mean? Well, for starters, it's the, for starters, it's the exact opposite of confidence in our own goodness, our own intelligence, confidence in the brass, vast breadth and knowledge of, of, of our understanding, our ability to you know, be the masters of our own faith. See, being poor in spirit is a recognition of how desperate you are. Being poor in spirit is recognition. You need God. That you, along with the rest of the human race, are completely and totally lost without God. It's coming to the recognition that you are, in fact, a sheep. As we talked about not that long ago, you're a follower. 
okay? I mean, that's what Jesus referred to us. Lovingly, he referred to us as sheep who are followers. That's the nature of sheep is to follow. You are easily pressured. You're easily caught up in the crowd. You're easily a victim of peer pressure. You're easily deceived. All human beings are this way by nature. But of course, our pride makes this very difficult for us to face and to, to reckon with despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary that people in this world, are, they're just followers, they're sheep. There, there's two words for poor in the Greek language that are used in the New Testament. One describes a person who has to work all the time because they own no property. The other describes a person who is so destitute that they have to beg from others. The first refers to someone who has the bare essentials. The second refers to someone who has absolutely nothing, and they know it. Guess which word Jesus uses in this passage when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, the second one. Jesus says, blessed are those who recognize they are absolutely helpless and have nothing to bargain with, who recognize they need God as their shepherd. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It's not, it's not, you know, hey, I'm going to become poor in spirit so that I can inherit the kingdom of heaven. No, it's coming to the realization you already are poor and helpless and needy and always have been, even if, and maybe especially if you are materially and, fi materially and financially wealthy with the world's good, world's goods, you're still poor. Spiritually, you are poor. And that recognition of just how poor and needy you are is a sign, an indication, it is evidence that you have stepped into the kingdom of heaven. That's a totally different way to look at this passage. This is what Jesus, this is what Jesus intended. Now, here's something you may, have, may not have noticed about the Beatitudes before. Notice how these are not eight, eight standalone attributes or qualities. These are actually eight descriptive characteristics of a person who is welcoming the kingdom of, of heaven, and each one connects to the next one. For example, a person who comes to the realization they are actually very poor naturally begins to mourn, don't they? They mourn over their spiritual and moral poverty and, and the spiritual and moral poverty that they see in the world. A person who mourns naturally becomes a meek person, not proud and self-assured and confident that you have all the answers, but, but meek. And a meek person develops a hunger and thirst for what is true, for true righteousness and real justice. A meek person. And a person who hungers and thirsts for true righteousness and real justice becomes merciful, which creates in them a purity of heart leading them to crave peace and to seek peace and to become a peacemaker, which ironically results in their being persecuted in a world that is hostile toward all those things. We'll be going through all this in much more detail in the coming weeks, but, but I encourage you just to spend some time this week reflecting and meditating on how these things are all connected. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. But notice also how the first blessing and the last blessing are exactly the same. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So one way to look at this is, 
is that by bracketing these eight qualities with those two blessings, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, all the other blessings can be considered different ways that the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, is breaking into our world. And a new heavenly world order is unfolding. But it all begins with being poor in spirit. The first sign that you've begun to embrace the kingdom of heaven. Coming the recognition that there is a God and you ain't him. And you desperately need him because you are broken and sinful. The early church father, St. Augustine, wrote in his, in his biography, he said, I will now try to give a coherent account of my disintegrated self. He refers to, to himself as, as his disintegrated self. When I turned away from you, the one God, and pursued a multitude of things, I went to pieces. C.S. Lewis said this, No one knows how truly bad they are until they have tried very hard to be good. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are beginning to get in touch with how truly bad they are. Because it is a sign, it is the first sign that you are beginning to embrace the kingdom of heaven. How many of you, um, you look at the world today, you look at the injustice and the corruption, the division, the hostility, the racism, the poverty, the war, the suffering, and it just, it deeply troubles you. It angers you, it frustrates you, but, but mostly it just breaks your heart and makes you feel sad. How many of you, that's true? Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus said, blessed are you. This is a sign that the kingdom of heaven is invading your life, a sign that you have welcomed and embraced the kingdom of heaven into your life. Don't be discouraged when you look at the world and it breaks your heart. And don't resist those feelings. There are many passages in the Gospels that describe Jesus as, as re reacting the same way to the brokenness in the world. It's a sign that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into your heart and life. But notice the order Notice what, becomes what comes before this kind of mourning. See, if you just find yourself angry with the way things are, angry at the corruption and the abuse and the blatant deception, sad over the sad state of affairs, but you have not first sensed and acknowledged the sad state of affairs in your own heart, the spiritual poverty in your own life, well, then that's just self-righteousness. That's not the kingdom of heaven breaking into your heart. That's your kingdom. You know, remember the story Jesus told about the two men who went to the temple to pray. The first one said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Uh, I'm not, I'm, you know, not corrupt. I'm not deceitful and arrogant. Uh, uh, I'm not ignorant like those people on the other side of the aisle. Oh, can you believe them? Meanwhile, somebody on the other side of the aisle is going, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said the kingdom of God was coming to that second man, not to the first one. Why did Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? Because our mourning and our grieving, first over our own brokenness, but also over the brokenness of the world, is a sign that we have welcomed the kingdom of heaven and that you have taken hold of the kingdom of heaven. Or better yet, it's a sign that God has taken hold of you. A sign that 
You are in his hands, and he has begun that work of, of, of repairing and restoring and redeeming you. I'm going to ask for the worship team to come back up. John Newton uh, was a successful sea merchant in the, in the 1700s. And in his own words, he was quite a decent chap. He was actually the captain of a ship that brought African slaves to England. But at that time, the slave trade was for the most part culturally, culturally deemed acceptable. Of course, there were those who spoke against the slave trade, but, but most people considered those people to be self-righteous, moralist, you know, backwards, you know, out-of-touch finger-waggers who really had little compassion or empathy for the tens of thousands of people who would face what they considered unbearable hardship, financial and otherwise, if the slave trade were abolished. They lamented that they might lose their farms, lose their businesses, their means of support if the slave trade were abolished. Well, John Newton was among those who saw the slave trade as being a necessary thing to alleviate the financial and economic distress that so many were facing. At least, that's where he stood at the beginning. On one of his sea voyages, he began reading a book that one of the crew had brought on board, Thomas Kempis's uh, The Imitation of Christ. And it had such a profound impact on him that he surrendered, he wound up surrendering his life to God, renouncing the slave trade, and even years later, he eventually even became an Anglican priest and a staunch ally of William Wilberforce, the leader of the par parliamentary campaign to abolish the slave trade. And John Newton actually lived to see the successful passage of the Slave Trade Act in 1807 but not before he wrote dozens of hymns, many of which are still being sung in churches all over the world today, including this one. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What was it that caused this man who once considered himself quite a decent chap to wind up seeing himself as a wretch. I mean, nobody told him he was a wretch. Nobody ever referred to him as a wretch. It was something he came to an awareness of himself as he began to embrace the kingdom of heaven breaking into his life and into his world. And it's not a miserable song about self-loathing. You know the song. Not at all. This is a song celebrating something amazing and glorious and beautiful. God's amazing grace. May we embrace today the kingdom of heaven in such a way that it leaves us recognizing just what wretches we are and just how desperate we need God. In just a few minutes, we're going to receive communion together. But I thought maybe we could just sing a little bit of that very familiar uh, uh, hymn. Lois, would you lead us in a couple verses of that?